This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to Radiotherapy for giving us, uh, well, they give us uh, Radiotherapy for an hour. We've got you for an hour of science now. Uh, sorry I was away last week, folks. Had to... um take a short trip to Singapore. But I did listen to the show. Uh, Laura had it in her capable hands, and I listened to the program from the Botanical Gardens in Singapore, which I have to say, not bad. Anyway, in the studio, Dr. Ewan, good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. And Chris KB. G'day, mate. How you going? I'm okay. And it's just us. It's a bit of a, it's a dude fest today, folks. I apologize for this. Mm. I did my best. We always try and keep um, a gender balance on the program, but every single female co-host today said they wanted a day off. Could have been because Chris was in. I was going to um, say, did you mention my name first? That <laughs> may, have, may have been an error. But, yeah. but Liv is doing our Twitter feed, so we're not completely devoid of uh, a balance here in the studio. But um, anyway, sorry about that. We've got a couple of guests uh, who are also uh, male. Um, we really, I don't know, just all went wrong this week. <laughs> but that'll be good. Talking about some really interesting stuff a little bit later. But we're going to start off with some news. Dr. Ewan, what do you got? I was going to talk about everyone's favourite pachyderm. <laughs> yes, please Which go ahead. What's your favourite pachyderm? Chris? Uh, mammoth. Mammoth. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I find it hard to fulfil that, uh, that, that, that preference. Yeah. You've been looking for them everywhere. They're working on bringing yeah. them back. So you well, that's, know. that's, that's so, the exciting thing, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't mind them coming back. So this pack, these pachyderms are actually Asian elephants, and there was a really cool study that came out uh, in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, big journal. And basically it turns out that elephants can essentially uh, choose between different items in terms of different weight using their sense of smell. Which is pretty damn nifty. Say that again. They can yeah. choose between so, different items. Um, a weight, basically, yeah. the amount of something using their sense of smell, not their vision. Oh. So we know with birds and mammals that, you know, if you, as an example, if you put a pile of, two piles of food in front of chimpanzees and one pile is bigger than the other, yeah. they'll go for the one that's bigger. Right. We know that. Most humans generally will do the same. <laughs> <laughs> Manifests itself as a dessert stomach. Yeah, it depends what it is. Depends. I'm talking about the same, the same food items. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So they did this experiment essentially where they put sunflower seeds in buckets and not a huge amount either. I think it ranged between four and 24 grams. So not, not massive amounts. Um, and then they essentially changed the amount that was in each bucket. So there was perforations in the bucket, but otherwise the elephant had no Right. Um, cues at all. All they could smell was, you know, what was in the bucket. Yep, yep. And they did this trial with a number of elephants, and it turns out they were incredibly uh, accurate at choosing the bucket um, that had more in it each time. Is it, is it just? Is it related to the quantity of smell? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so this is the thing. They don't actually know exactly how they're doing this, and they did become more accurate as the difference in the buckets, the two buckets, increased. So yeah. when one had yeah. more, they were more accurate. But even um, with relatively small differences, they were still quite accurate. And, and most importantly, I think as well, that they found that the male elephants were more more successful in choosing the difference in in the amounts. Now. Um, elephants will often undertake quite large migrations. So these are Asian elephants, which typically live in the rainforest, mm. but African elephants especially will move really long distances um, to find resources. And so mm. the the evolutionary explanation potentially is that when they're making choices about which way to go, you know, if you're going to walk mm. 200 kilometres one way, um, you want to make damn sure that you're yeah, going yeah, yeah. towards where the, be- the best the bang for buck is, right? Yeah. 
and also finding mates. So male elephants will also need to find females. And so if you can smell something from a really, really long way away accurately, because uh, obviously you can't see it, um, there's a distinct advantage and is that, in that. So the idea behind that presumably is that if you can smell more females further away, then the likelihood of being rejected is reduced slightly. <laughs> Probably depends how big you are as an elephant, I a male of, elephant too. I speak for but, the elephants. Uh, yeah, you speak for the elephants. So it is, it is curious to me though, because when you think of the elephant, you know, you think of the fact that it's got this giant sniffer. Yeah, and sure it does. I, I've always wondered, like, just how that. You know, we often talk about how how good a dog's sense mm-hmm. of smell is, and that. And how much better is an elephant than the other animals around? I'm them? glad you asked, because that was another really important point that uh, I actually didn't even realise myself this week. That I think the dog nose has about two thousand genes. Sorry, eight hundred genes that are involved in smell. Okay. Elephants, 2,000. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So they so probably leave dogs simple. for yeah. dead in terms yeah, yeah. of being able to sense smell. So, yeah, pretty impressive mm. uh, ability to discern things, including, yeah. it, as it would appear, amounts of things, which is pretty amazing. That is interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, it's... I mean, I, I expect that they have done tests where, depending on the how smelly the food is you know there must there must be a limit to where they can do this yeah that wasn't actually mentioned in the article that i saw in terms of which different smells in this case they're only using a potential food reward in this case sunflower seeds but yeah that would be an interesting thing because obviously some smells would be really subtle other ones would be quite pungent well sunflower seeds aren't that smelly no but to us no you can smell them but like it's not yeah but it's not like they're you know like it's a piece of meat but or that's, something. Yeah, but that's, really, where the, that's where the, uh, the genes come into it. They, exactly, they, they yeah. may well have receptors that we don't even have. Yeah, when you absolutely. think about the fact that dogs can smell cancer inside a human, yeah, yeah, and yeah. we've got no idea. No idea. You know, their sense of smell is just a whole other level mm. to yeah. ours. Yeah. So. Well, it's like, I think it's, we, we don't think of it this way, but it's, as you say, Chris, it's like sight. Mm. We have a certain spectral range. Yep. And that's in, all terms we know. Of, in terms of smells, we have a yep. certain mm. spectral range yep. in the exact same yep. way. And 2,000 genes versus yep. 800 yep. versus, what have we got? I actually don't have a small number. Yeah. But yeah. not, but I mean, not compared to dogs and elephants, we're woeful. We're, we're, so. we're, <laughs> body odor and bacon is pretty much it, I think. <laughs> Speak for yourself, mate. Uh, I can smell strawberries as well. <laughs> but, but that's that's it. Three things. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, they're fascinating creatures. Chris KP, what do you got? Uh, I wanted to talk earthquakes. Um, oh, cool. Uh, yes. I love a good yes. earthquake. Well, as long as I'm not near it. I'm, yeah, that's, that's how you define good and bad earthquake. Yeah. I love a good earthquake. They're the ones that aren't near me. Although I must say, I recently experienced one. This is what I was, I was going to talk oh, wow. about. I was, so here's the thing. I was, I was in South America and I had, uh, my mother had forgotten I was going there and she rang me at like 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> I don't think she caused the earthquake, um, but I was sort of awake then. Like she didn't ruin my sleep and I was lying in and out of sleep and then I thought I heard someone walking in the yeah. hotel bathroom <clears throat> and then and then i realized that the, i could almost feel this these steps mm-hmm. yeah and then i sort of tuned out of it and the next day they're saying no there was an earthquake you know yeah. in argentina and it was it was like a 5.7 earthquake but they build everything so well yeah um you know in, yeah. in Santiago. We, had, we had one in melbourne about two or three years ago yeah. i remember in our house yes. i remember feeling it and going yeah. oh what is this? Yes. Oh, this is an earthquake. And it wasn't like really scary because it wasn't, you know, massive, but it was, I mean, the walls were shaking. Yeah. You don't, yeah. and you don't, um, when you grow up in a city where you basically don't have them, it's yeah. quite an unusual experience. Oh, so very so I, I was in Anaheim, oh, it must have been 20 years ago now, um, near Universal Studios when, um, you probably remember there was quite a significant earthquake in California when the freeways collapsed. Oh, yes. Uh, traveled that freeway, uh, day before. To my hotel. Good time. I uh, was on the, on the 25th floor of the Sheridan Hotel when the earthquake hit, and I can tell you, it was a scary scenario. The mm. building was moving a lot. Mm. But it was, as you say, it was designed to handle yep. a certain degree of movement. Yep. And I thought, well, I'm so high up, you know, by the time I get down, the building yeah. will be on top of me anyway. Yeah, but, yeah. so, but it was, um, for someone who hadn't grown up in an earthquake yep. zone, 
it was it was quite serious. I mean, yeah. it was actually a serious earthquake. A lot of people yeah. died, but um, it was one of those things where, for me, as someone who'd experienced, yeah. you know, a four point two as a kid, yeah. and it could have been a big truck yes. going past, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you don't yeah. really have a feel for just how much energy is being yeah. released. It was quite quite fascinating to fascinating and scary as hell to experience that. It's a very weird sensation, totally. Mm. Uh, but they're not the ones I'm talking about, though. Oh, um, okay. I mean, that's, don't get me wrong. <laughs> don't get me wrong. They're great. Um, yeah. But specifically, I want to talk about. Uh, um, you know, Ocean Ridge earthquakes. So this is oh, underwater. Yeah, 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 so basically, t- t- if you want to picture this, you get two tectonic plates that are jammed up against each other on a bit of an angle. Yep. Uh, and when the earthquakes happen, the, the higher one sort of drops. That's really what's going on. Um, and what they've, they've known, we've known for some time that these coincide with changes in tide. Yeah. And you would think if you had a high tide, obviously, it would push the More thing down. Yeah, that's yeah. not what happens. Hmm. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Wow. And what they've been finding is that it's actually when there's a low tide event, you get earthquakes. Which seems totally counterintuitive. So a bunch of guys at um, is it, so is it yeah. because the pressure is not there? I mean, because this so is this is what both. we're finding with ice yeah. and volcanoes in Iceland and so forth, where it's, they're yes. pinching off the magma flow. So essentially, all of a yeah, sudden, so this, the pressure's not there and they're, yeah. they're erupting. Because the thing we often forget that that yeah, we talk about earthquakes happening you know in the crust, which is tiny. It's mm. a wafer thin yeah, yeah, layer. Yeah. Most of the action is way underneath. So yeah. yes, when there is less water, there's less pressure above, which means that that magma can now push up, expand, and contract. Mm. It can mm. move a lot more. It's got mm. a lot more capacity to to expand and contract, which it does, predictably. Furthermore, it doesn't take much. It's not like you need a really low tide. Um, the, yeah, research that at Columbia Uni have been going, it doesn't take much for the earthquakes to start to happen. So a drop, um, it's it's like on a knife edge of pressure. A small drop in, in pressure of water is enough to trigger the magma moving about, and then it's high-ho earthquake season again. Mm. So what does this mean for sea level rise? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Less earthquakes, more water. So mm. would that would that make the change in in tidal pressure or change in tides more or less significant? Mm, that's I what don't I'm know. curious about. I yeah. don't know. I think if there was a sudden a sudden increase, it may. I guess it might increase, but it's it's how it's the it's the increase in frequency of changes in tide. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I've got no idea. And ultimately, yeah, you know, there's a there's a balance at the moment that we've gotten to over a very yeah. long yeah. period of time, and we'll get to a new balance. And between now and then, yeah, we're unbalanced. Well, there'll be a period of adjustment, yeah, yeah, um, totally. and it may be yeah. it may be a period of greater stability, or it may be a period of less stability. Yes, but, yes. But you know, you've got to reach these balance points. Which you make it that exciting. Uh, no, um, and, and, and it will take millions of years. That's the other thing. Like, these things are not short, short adjustments. They, they take a long time. So, hmm. Yay. Speaking of things that take millions of years, um, actually, here's, here's a fun fact. I didn't realize this. You know, when we were growing up, the, the, um, the new dinosaurs that were coming out were few and far between. Mm. Um, it, it wasn't a thing, right? You'd, you'd rarely hear about a new dinosaur. Apparently today, one new dinosaur is um, reported every week. Which I am amazed at. I think that's, but there's so many more paleontologists around, and there's so many more parts of the Earth that are now being, you know, looked at, mm-hmm. especially in countries where, in in the past, you know, China and so forth, where we, yes. we just that just wasn't happening. Yes, yes. And you know, all of this stuff is being studied in more detail. Part of that is also a lot of museum materials that have been stored, you know, in crates and so forth for for literally for generations and never ever, you know, looked at or in private collections and never looked at. So a lot of that stuff is coming out as well. And we've seen here in Australia a vision that in the last week where um, some bones that basically have been unstudied since they were first found in the 1980s, believe it or not, um, 
were donated as part of the government's cultural gift program uh, and have been studied by um, a guy named Phil Bell, who's from the University of New England. And these are these are basically from the Lightning Ridge um, range. So you, yes. you know where you get all the opals and yes, stuff? Yes, yes. And they represent... So, the, so there's a couple of really interesting parts about this, this new find, is first of all, they represent the single most um, complete opalized dinosaur there is. So... Opals, which actually later in the show, I'm going to explain how opals are made. I thought uh, I, I read want this an story. Opal dinosaur. Oh, I read that this story really and I thought yeah. opal dinosaur is great. And so I think you get little parts of bones and that become. It's opalized. like a rainbow dinosaur. <coughs> rainbow dinosaur. Mm. And um, the thing is, though, is uh, you, it's very rare to get large amounts of a dinosaur skeleton opalized. So they've found a fair amount of this this dinosaur um, opalized. But in addition to that, uh, they've found essentially like a pack or a little family of dinosaurs. Mm. So it wasn't one. Apparently wow. when they were looking through these bones, I was sort of like, hang on, uh, that's too many shoulder blades. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 oh, and by the way, they're all different sizes. So yeah. they don't, you know, there's like wow. five of them and they don't all belong, like no two of them belong to the one dinosaur. So, you know, it's pretty easy to start working out, hang on, these things are all different sizes. Mm. They must all come from different dinosaurs. So they've got this essentially like a little herd of dinosaurs that they've discovered there that, uh, you know, essentially are, you know, either a family or a pack, but they've all died together and they're all slightly different sizes, so from, ranging from juvenile up to fully grown. And one of them is a completely, or, you know, or essentially this is a completely new dinosaur that we haven't seen or discovered mm-hmm. before. Nice. Um, which is really cool. And they've named it, it's, it's got a, a name that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try not to butcher this name. Um, but because of the, the bones were um, donated by Gregory and Joanne Foster in 2015, um, they've named it Fostoria Bimbangunmal, which is okay. a local local name um, for the region. It means um, sheepyard, which I guess makes some sense because there was a whole lot of them sure. all together. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, um, four of these four of these skeletons um, were found and, and have been classified now, and it's it's a two legged plant eating um, iguanodontian. Oh, which is a word I love. Yeah, like yeah, a big iguanodon. Yeah, yes, yes. is a word that I try and use once a week. Um, I, think, I think rainbow iguanodon is a <laughs> phrase that I, I need to use more commonly. <laughs> I would love it if you know the most expensive opal ever found was just like a dinosaur skull, like oh, yeah, just, it, just by sheer yeah, size of the yes. opal. It would be, be cool? awesome. Um, that'd be awesome. But no, it's only little parts usually, which is a bit of a shame. <laughs> anyway, um, some new dinosaurs found here in Australia. Australia is becoming a bit of a hotbed for dinosaur discoveries, which um, it wasn't for quite a while, but it is now. There's a whole other stuff that's coming out, which is really cool. So anyway. There you go. You never know what's sitting in the back cupboard somewhere. There's often a lot of stuff that we just um, haven't looked at and haven't researched. So if you've got some dinosaur bones at home, folks, uh, you might want to ring a Especially museum. Especially if they're opalized. Especially yeah. if they're opalized. <laughs> Don't go to the jeweler first. Go to the museum first and see if you can find someone to have a look at them. Anyway, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. We're going to take a break for some music, and when we come back, we will be speaking with a researcher on the phone uh, on a very interesting topic. Hang in there. 3 Triple. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to 3RRR. We uh, hopefully have on the phone now Dr. Kang Liang. He is from the University of New South Wales. Kang, can you hear me? Yes. Now, let me, I'm just going to turn your volume up a little bit. Uh, how's that? Can you hear me now? Yes, yes. Excellent. Now, you're doing some really interesting work at the moment on what, what are essentially called micro-submarines. These are uh, devices that allow you to move into the body for drug de- delivery. Can you give us a bit of an idea what what you're talking about exactly? Because there's been a lot of different versions of this tried over the last few years. What, what's different about the, the work you're on, on at the moment? So, um, just 
Um, I think just to 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 easy to um, to understand. So imagine about a submarine, uh, a real submarine. So we have probably I think it has one two important features, right? One is the engine that allows it to move, yep. and the other one is the gear. Yep. So that 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 continuous direction or flowing up and down. So um, in our microsystem, what we call micro submarines, because we have we can sort of achieve all these two uh, mechanisms into into one um, micro particles. So mm. that's why we call it micro submarines. And um, yeah, yeah. And, and so can you can you talk us through how the two things work? I mean, you've got the engine and you've got the steering. How how do those work individually? Right, so um, making an engine into a microparticles is um, it's, it's pretty straightforward because we can just use um, specific biochemical reactions. Um, mm-hmm. For example, we can put in um, specific enzymes that can um, take take the specific substances in the body and convert it to um, mechanical energy. So th- this will let the particle to move around. And to build in um, steering mechanism, it's uh, quite tricky. So in this case, we have to come up with a very composite, composite, like sort of complicated system because we have to combine polymer, inorganic particles, and and um, enzymes in in all together in one in one small particle form. So, um, so we specially designed this polymer, and um, this can um, it, it it can it can reversibly either take the gas or release the gas. It's like, just like in the real um, submarine. So once all the gases are bind to the polymers, and um, these particles can or can just go up because they have a lot of um, the, the buoyancy force increases. And on the other hand, um, once they release all these gas bubbles, and then the, the particle can sink down. Okay, Kang, it's Chris KP here. Um, I'm just interested in how... Or is, there any, is there any risk that the body will see this as some sort of infection or some sort of foreign body how do we get around that immunological yeah, challenge so, um currently we are still at the early stage so we are we are at the proof of concept stage because previously um i mean previously we we fo- we've been focusing on okay controlling the the move the directions of these microparticles that can one day be used as the like a microsurgery tool in the body um but the challenge is um it's a two-dimensional movement, so we have to come up with a strategy to to building a third-dimensional movement, so that can ultimately allow this particle to move um, in a freely or controllably in a three-dimensional space. How? Um, yeah. How um how easy is it for you to tell where it is in three-dimensional space? Is, do you have to be in some some sort of scanner, or can you track it in real time? Yeah, we we track currently we track it in real time using a sophisticated microscopes. Um, hmm. So, but I wouldn't imagine that would be quite tricky once we um, once we use this in a, even animal models or, or ultimately in humans. That have to we have to come up with uh, some sort of precision um, imaging system yeah. to, mm. to allow this. Yeah. And King, like you've mentioned, two I, I suspect two of the three things required. I mean, you've got the motor, so you can drive it, you can steer it, but the third thing, of course, is navigation. How do you how do you actually work on uh, these particular machines navigating their way through the body because the the entire you know golden standard of, of drug delivery is getting the drug you need to the location you need instead of having to flood the entire body with it is that something that you can do yes um potentially we can we can put all this um for example antibodies to specifically target um t- 
target specific place in the body. Um, but the the main focus we're trying to achieve is because I mean even even with the with the targeting, it's still kind of passive because the particles once you inject these particles in the body, then they rely on the blood flow to carry mm. the particles. But we saw this. What if it can give some sort of extra kick, like? For example, this this um, to make an engine into it, so they can move even against mm. the black hole. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And so does that does that mean you know are we talking about uh, really small quantities of drug delivery and so forth in each one of these? So you'd, you'd essentially put a, a you know an army of these into the body, or is it something that you'd size up? Uh, yes, I think you're right. So we we the particles are itself are small, but. Um, we can easily make billions of them. So, mm. um, um, and and each each of these microparticles contains probably billions of drug molecules. So, um, the, in, in total, they can carry a lot of drugs. Yeah, and, and in terms of um, what, what happens to them when they're finished? Do, mm. How do we get them out of the body, or do they just get flushed out like all the other sort of junk that ends up in the body that we don't need? Yeah, so um, they got they got degraded over time, so mm-hmm. uh, into very very small molecules, so they, um, like like metal ions and things. So it can be just get rid of through the urinary tract. Yeah, well, it sounds really interesting. What's what's the sort of timing on this? It sounds like I mean, you're obviously doing this in the lab. When, when do you think you'll be able to try this on some sort of small animal model or, or something more in situ? So we are looking to try animal models in about two three years. Mm-hmm. We have to currently we are trying to identify a good partner to work uh, with the animal models, and but seeing from animal models to the real human application would take. Oh, such a long time. Yeah, it'll take a long time. Yeah. yeah, but it's look. It sounds like if you get there, it'll be uh, well worth the wait because um, it it deals with a lot of problems with the way drugs and surgery and so forth mm-hmm. are currently delivered. Kang, so much for uh, uh, thanks so much for chatting to us today, and um, good luck with the ongoing work. Yes, thank you, Dr. Shane. Uh, you're very welcome. Um, that was Dr. Kang Ling from the University of New South Wales working on some interesting new molecules, which, uh, yeah, I like these things, self-driving, self-steering, mm. self-navigating. They've got the whole three going there by the sounds of things, which is a bit different to a lot of the versions that have been out there yes, in the yes. past where they seem to just be self-propelling. <laughs> bumping into stuff. Can't steer them, can't navigate <laughs> them, can't do anything. So, anyway. Three. Triple. Anyway, in the studio now we have a guest in the flesh. His name is Dr. Chris McCarthy. He's a senior lecturer in work integrated learning and sorry, the work integrated learning coordinator in the Department of Computer Science and Software Engineering at Swinburne University of Technology. Chris, welcome to Triple R. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, I got all that out. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the shorter ac- academic intros, actually. Some yeah, it's them, not some bad. Them are a lot longer, <laughs> yeah. so not too bad. Now you uh, you were recommended by one of our hosts, Lauren. Yes, um, Dr. Lauren. Who you yes. know through the Bionic Eye yes. Project, which we'll get onto in a few minutes, but. You work on computer vision algorithms for robots. Is that's this, right. Is this stuff so robots can see? Yes, that's right. Yeah, I guess, um, I mean, in general, I just like pixels uh, yep. and using pixels to try and work out what's going on in the world, in the 3D yeah. world. Uh, and one of the applications, of course, is for robotic vision. So, yeah, basically trying to give eyes to robots to, to navigate and recognise things. And that, that so, sort of so, thing. so in, and I think this is where the tie-in will be later with the Bionic Eye, but... How much does a robot need for those things? So in terms of navigation, mm. how many pixels or how much information do I actually need? That's a great question, actually. And it really comes down to what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And 
one of the interesting things actually about this is in a lot of my early work in my phd work actually was looking at insect vision right as a as an inspiration yeah, for yeah. doing that because one of the things we try to do with computer vision is do it as efficiently as possible yep. and if you look at insects particularly they do it incredibly efficiently mm. and do it really really well uh, and so uh, the information you need really comes down to what are you trying to achieve if it's basic fine control kind of algorithms then you know things i looked at was things like motion cues right. yep. you can get a lot just from looking at how pixels appear to move yeah, yeah. and you can mm. see if, a, if a, a surface is growing in your image well clearly you're approaching it the rate of expansion of it can give you a cue about how far away you are from yeah. it so you yeah. can use that sort of information to do a lot of interesting things so really it comes down to what you're trying to do so um, so i mean that term i mean i'd love to, to get your insights in terms of that efficiency element of vision mm. because one of the things that bothers me is i know that my eye is more sophisticated than a fly mm. but never seem to be able to swat them you know they're pretty damn yeah, good at getting out of the way so, so what, what does it mean in terms of the what, what's an efficient eye how do you define an efficient well, eye well you know again it, it, eyes have evolved right and, mm. and different animals have different eye optic systems to, to yeah. suit, suit what they need to do flies and insects Obviously, uh, one of their key things is moving quickly mm. in, under, you know, cluttered conditions. Yeah. So their vision system, which is, of course, a very wide field of view, near 360 view, they have basically cameras pointing in all directions. All directions. Yeah. And if you look at that geometrically, actually, that... that gives them a lot of advantages for the kinds of mm. visual capabilities they need versus the human vision system, which is very much geared towards manipulating things, recognising mm. things. Detail. Our needs are very different to theirs. So that, that's it's really fascinating when you look at different eye systems and how they work. Yeah, yeah. yeah so along those lines, I guess, you know, robots are going to be operating under different conditions, like you're saying. Mm. So what about, you know, colour versus black and white, mm. you know, versus working at night versus working in the day? I mean, how, how is that being dealt with with robots? Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess it's that's a massive area, and I think um, it's where computer vision's challenges really lie, is yep. dealing with the fact that you, you can't rely on any one visual cue, like colour. I mean, what is colour? I mean, exactly. it depends on light. It depends mm. on mm. the surface you're looking at. Uh, and so a lot of the, the effort goes into building robust algorithms that can bring a whole bunch of features together um, to try and make appropriate decisions and and these days a lot of that's driven by machine learning as well yep. so in fact the really the whole field has been in the last 10 years entirely driven by these deep neural networks yep. that are coming in that are trying to infer how these different cues um, can be brought together to make intelligent decisions for a robot. So, yeah, of course, under certain conditions, if the lights are off yeah. and you've got a standard camera, it's pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, and maybe there's other sensors that then have to be used. But uh, increasingly, what we're seeing is, is, is algorithms are able to infer a lot of information from what maybe, from a visual point of view, we can't see exactly mm. what's there, but these algorithms are learning to associate features to do these types of things. Mm. To, to what extent um, is computing power and, and the advances in doing that uh, well, and, and I guess at scale, to what extent is that important for your work? Because I'm, I'm thinking in a dynamic system, mm. there's a lot of behind the sensory side of it yes. action going on. Yeah, so uh, yes, it's very important. Uh, and I guess there's, there's two, it depends in terms of the broader field of computer vision, it depends how much you care about it being real time or not. Uh, okay. uh, if it's real time, uh, then obviously you need a lot of computing to, to do a lot of mm. these sophisticated things. Again, machine learning though has this ability to do a lot of the heavy lifting for you offline such that what you then have on the actual system is the learnt system which doesn't right. necessarily take nearly as much computing yeah, okay. to do. So there are efficiencies like that. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I mean, in general, though, what we're trying to do is things as efficiently as we can to reduce the compute computational needs. Sure. But ultimately, yeah, it's a it's a very computationally intensive thing. One of the things we've actually gained a lot from in computer vision and robotics generally is uh, other advances in hardware around gaming, for example. So mm, GPUs, sure. graphic processing yep. units, have really allowed us to do things that were probably 20, 30 years ago thought about, but not practical. Mm. Suddenly, they're they're now available to anyone. You, know, mm. you can buy it for your desktop computer yeah. at home and have a, a graphic accelerated computer that can do you know big matrix operations really quickly, fast, in parallel. Uh, and that's allowed a lot of these algorithms to start to have traction like we're seeing in, in, in a lot of you know different areas. Mm. And th- there seem to be some really uh, fine-tuned sort of aspects of this that are happening. I mean, I, I tried one of the VR systems mm. yesterday and one of the things that surprised me was the instruction to keep my glasses on because I'm short-sighted. Yes. And I thought, initially I thought, well, the screen's going to be right in front of me. I won't need that. That, but but because of the way the information is displayed, yes. I'm still looking in the far field. I'm still looking at mm. a distant a distant screen, effectively. Which I thought, wow, there's some good processing mm. in here to make this yeah. make this work. A lot of interesting air processing, and I think just generally that the headsets themselves. Mm. I think it, it's a there's a gamut of different advances there. Again, VR is another you know really interesting uh, booming area now because we're suddenly able to to buy. What used to be thousands yeah, and thousands of yeah, dollars, yeah. a few hundred dollars, and, and even a piece of cardboard, and you put your phone yes. in it, you can do yeah. interesting VR with it now. So I think what we're seeing is the the fruits of having a lot of this stuff be cheaper, more people able to do it, mm. and we're seeing advances coming along. Now, in terms of the bionic eye, because this is where I, I suppose your work would would link in well, where you're saying, okay, well, what sort of information does a robot need to yes. do certain tasks? I mean, we have similar scenarios with the bionic eye, where we have very limited numbers of pixels available in the early stages of bionic eye development so what what i mean how do you arrange that in the way that you say okay for a person to navigate through rooms what sort of things do they need how do you define what vision should be in order for that task or another task yeah that that's uh that's a a really interesting question to to Mm. explore and you know really for me uh as a computer scientist uh when i came into that project you know being able to think about problems that i i sort of think about more i guess in algorithmic terms about now we're going to visualize this thing so rather than in a robot situation where you're putting it into a control loop suddenly we're thinking about it as a visualization problem how do i capture information and then visualize it for somebody who's got this implant yeah and as you say very very limited vision that it provides uh in the early days and, and, and frankly for a long time to come we're going to be dealing with huge constraints around just how much we can visually show somebody via these implants but what what I guess I've been looking at in my research and, and, and others with me uh, when I was in that, particularly with Bionic Vision Australia, I was with NICTA up in Canberra doing mm. uh, work with the computer vision group there. What we were really looking at was, yeah, how do we take algorithms that we've been probably using a lot in robotics uh, and then turn that into something that we can interface with this this implant. So the things I actually looked at were really basic cues for navigation. So, mm, mm. Uh, yeah, things like, so if we find the ground plane, for example, yep. we just know where the surface of the yep. ground is. Yep. Already we have got a really good piece of information mm, yeah. because anything yeah. that's not the ground yeah. uh, is, is likely to be something to worry about. Walk into, yeah. 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 And, and, in fact, really for bionic eye computer vision work, what we're really also trying to work at is what not to show. You know, it's, right. it's less is more sometimes because mm. you've got so much, so little bandwidth to show things yeah. 
that what you want to show is what's most important. So if it's about basic wayfinding, getting from A to B across, a, a, mm. a, 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 you know, even just a, a normal room, then it's about where is the free space. That's the key thing we were trying to achieve in that early stages. And in, in terms of that, so I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, maybe I'm completely wrong here, that the, the bionic eye designs are based on replicating as best as possible the standard human eye design. Mm. I mean, why wouldn't we, for example, in those circumstances, say, well, you know what, we've got a limited number of pixels here, let's make it more like a B. You know. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> Actually, I, I, I think w- one of the great advantages of of the approach we adopt, and, you know, the point being, of course, we're capturing images from a camera first, mm, yeah. so we're not using the optics of the mm, eye at yep, all. Yep. We're using a camera with digital pixels to, to first process, yep. so that allows us an incredible flexibility there. Or um, uh, uh, We've got a lot of ways we can do things. We don't have to do it, perhaps the, the, just showing the image mm, as it is, yeah, for yeah, example. Yeah. Um, so exactly right. I, 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 a lot of my interest is around looking at, well, what do we know from basic navigation cues for insects, even human vision as well. Uh, a lot of the cues used in insects are also used by humans to navigate. We mm. use motion cues. Mm. I would love to be able to think about ways and, and, and show how we can show the world in different ways that actually relate to particular types of tasks. So it may not be about seeing faces, it might be about knowing oh, how far am I away from surfaces mm. and then encoding that rather than trying to show the detail, which, frankly, is not likely to be seen anyway. Uh, and so trying to test these things and, and understand how they might be effective for enhancing yep. functional outcomes is a really big part Because it, it seems to me, I mean, if we, if we always come back to this issue of you've got a limit of how much you can give mm. a person mm. with bionic eye, then it seems to me as though you could go for a scenario where... You know, I switch my bionic eye into walking through the streets mode, mm. but then when I'm sitting with two people, I, I want to be able to get something about their facial cues or maybe see something like that. So I don't care about navigation anymore. Mm. I care a bit more about short range detail yes. over a short, a very small space. Is it, is there any thinking around doing that sort of thing where we, we make them almost adaptable to the, yeah. the situation rather than one size fits all? Definitely. I, I think it's, it's, it's probably, uh, you know, it's not the key focus of current research around retinal prostheses generally, mm. but, but in terms of computer vision, yes. I mean, what we're trying to, there are, you know, there's a broader field out there looking at scene understanding, for example, how to just infer yeah. what is the scene at this moment. Yeah. And then you obviously could use that to then make choices about how you visualize that scene. So certainly that, that's in play in terms of research that's going on. On the other hand, it could easily also just be that the, the patient themselves implanted has that choice as well and could clearly switch between modes yeah. um, through an interface. Uh, I guess long-term, we'd try to not have too many knobs to tweak on these do- devices. Uh, research sort of shows so far that people aren't that willing to just keep tweaking around with, yeah, the, yeah. with their systems, so it's probably likely to be better if, if it's inferring self, this. Yeah, self-adapting. But, um, but this is where the sort of broader field of computer vision has a lot to contribute because understanding your context, understanding what might be important in a given context is certainly part of the research going yeah, on. Yeah. So in a rope, uh, sorry, in a human, I can understand obviously you, you want to, might want to focus on the eye if, if that vision is an issue, but with robots, I guess I'm just curious about how do you integrate other senses? So mm. obviously navigating with vision is really important, but let's say... Um, there's a wall over there and that wall's on fire. Mm. Now, the robot needs to know that, presumably, right? So those other sensors give you other, you know, I guess, cues about you yeah. know, how you might respond to a situation. So how much work is being done around how not just one particular sense, be it vision, yeah. but 
hearing, touch, sure. smell, whatever it might Position. be, how do they actually sort of talk to each other and help the robot make good decisions? Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. Um, I think any real-world robot operating is operating with multiple sensors mm. and that has to be integrated. And so there's that whole sensor fusion problem uh, and there's, you know... If, decades of work looking at how you take different modalities of information um, to try and integrate them. It could also be, you know, in the end you're trying to build this sort of probabilistic model yep. around what is going on and so they are all inputs to that and they they can be weighted depending on how much you trust each sensor yep. um, input. Um, often with vision even you can have the perfect image but it's still ambiguous. Yep. Um, yep. Humans are just as susceptible yep. as yes, robots. Yes. Mm. Absolutely. Um, uh, not as much as robots. But, um, <laughs> but basically, um, you know, we do need other bits of input to, to basically build that probabilistic model around what is going on. So actually that's pretty common to be, you mm. know, in a robot really dealing with real world scenarios, it's very unlikely they're working purely mm. on vision alone yep. uh, and so we have these other modalities yep. to either mm. confirm what we're seeing or um, fill in the gaps or simply yep. um, add more um, evidence to the decision making yeah. Chris, sort of just following on from that, I mean the other project that I'm interested in that you're working on is with the Royal Children's Hospital mm. and yep. having a socially engageable, I think the term you use, robot. And I think yeah. they're, I mean, they're pretty good at the children's, but at some hospitals you could work on being a socially engageable <laughs> doctor. Um, <laughs> wouldn't be a bad thing. I mean, there's some great ones out there, but there's yep. some also some yep. that you could readily replace sure. with robots and no one would know the difference. Sure. Um, I mean, what, what's involved in doing that? How? Uh, what, what sort of things make a socially engageable ro- robot for yeah, the patient? That's, uh, that's uh, another project, quite quite separate and different yeah. to other projects uh, that I've been on, but uh, a really rewarding one. So social Social robots uh, generally is, is a field, I guess, of looking at a human-robot interaction. How yep. do we design robots to actually work with humans? You know, and I think uh, we can see increasingly machines generally are becoming part of our lives and they have to team up with us, they have to work with us or help us or do things. So there's this whole field of social robots. The socially engaging aspect is really about the idea that there is now interest in, in looking at how robots might be deployed particularly in healthcare settings but also educational settings Mm. um, amongst others uh, where there's a potential for an advantage to be gained by having a robot as a presence in the room to uh, engage, for example, uh, in the case of the, the Children's Hospital Project, we're looking at paediatric rehabilitation. Mm. So uh, anyone who's ever done rehab will know how boring how hard it can be yeah. if you really had to do mm-hmm. it i mean this is adults let alone children yeah. and yeah. We'll, we've been working particularly uh with children with cerebral palsy right uh and so you've got also cognitive um yep. uh, deficits to to have there as well so understanding why am i doing these terrible exercises mm. that make me feel uh sometimes pain and, and yeah. upset uh is hard so the resources that go into that from a hospital's point of view is is time and as well as uh the expertise of physiotherapists and play therapy people to try and obviously yeah. um motivate but uh, another option potentially is using a, a social robot so a robot designed not to physically assist mm. but rather to engage with the child as a, essentially a companion Mm. Uh, it could be what we've basically been looking at is when we we went in there four years ago and this was a project uh, that started with a a grant from the TAC um, looking at potentially road accident victims we ended up uh, not going that way but but that's where we started and we didn't really know 
what we were going to come up with, but we had an agreement with the Children's Hospital, Adam Scheinberg there um, in the rehab clinic, to go in every Tuesday to start with and just start to talk to patients, talk to parents, talk to therapists, have our robot. We're using this robot called the Now robot. It's uh, about 57 centimetres. We didn't build the robot, by the way. We, we purchased mm-hmm. the robot, yep. we program it. Uh, and it's designed to be uh, a very socially engaging robot. If you, if you go online and see it, you'll see it's a very cute robot, uh, very widely used in the human-robot interaction research community. Uh, It's a great platform for doing that kind of research. We decided to try and work out how it could work, and the short story is that over about eight months we started working (coughs) with patients, Mm. and then by about after two years with my PhD student, Philippe um, Carrillo, uh, we were able to sort of put it through a, essentially a, not a full clinical trial. We're not ready for that yet. In fact, that's where I think we need to go. But uh, to get there, you need a system that works robustly. Mm. So we had a system that basically was deployed with patients for 30 minutes uh, during their patient care, deliver, de- demonstrating exercises, um, giving them um, basic encouragement, uh, and it was used with a therapist in the room as well or a parent, uh, essentially to try and improve their um, mm. compliance with the program, um, to get them doing more exercises. Ultimately, the, the, the problem we're trying to solve here is that when therapists aren't in the room, uh, the, expectation is, yeah, yeah. Yeah. the expectation yes. is not a lot's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so in a lot of the care that's delivered, that's about one-third of the... For inpatients there, yeah. that's about one-third of their sessions that mm. may or may not be happening. Mm. If we can use a robot to improve that, then hopefully what we're seeing is yeah. better outcomes at the end. So that's what we're aiming for, um, and that's that's the idea mm. of the robot. Sounds good. Chris, look, it's fascinating stuff. It's great to hear that all this is being done in Melbourne too, and um, yeah. I think uh, ro- robots are a bit of a slow, bit of a slow burn you know, yeah. in terms of <clears throat> their uptake and use, but uh, this, this sounds like really excellent work. So thanks so much for coming in and chatting. No worries. Thanks for having me. Dr. Chris McCarthy is from Swinburne University of Technology. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements, folks, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Three, triple, And we're back. You are listening to Einstein and Kogo on 3 Oh, Hey, uh, when we were talking about that dinosaur story mm. earlier in the news segment, mm. and I mentioned the word opalization mm. or opals. It got me thinking, because as an optical physics guy, I was like, how do opals work? Yes. And I remember reading about this years ago, and I think I've talked about it on the show like maybe 20 years ago. Um, but I thought we'd just, you know, just touch on it again, because there's only a couple of places in the world where you can find opals. So, and Australia is basically, you know, the place. Opal Arana. We had a great <coughs> afternoon chipping away in Cooper Pedy for oh, little yeah. bits. It was yeah, great, yeah. Great, great, nice. great, great fun. Yeah, nice. Recommend it. And so it's interesting. I mean, one of the things we have to remember is um, Australia, of course, had an inland sea for mm. a long time. And the reason we know this, in case you're wondering, it's not because someone took a photo. It's because there are certain parts of the country which are quite a long way from the coast where there are a lot of um, sort of fossilised shells mm. and fish bones and so forth. So we know that there was quite a substantial in- inland sea. With that, of course, comes an inland beachfront. Um, and with a beachfront comes a lot of deposits of silica or, you know, basically Bang. sand. Mm. And... If you have enough of this sand and eventually, you know, the rains come down and you drive that sand into cracks in rocks and so forth and crevices, and then you mix it up for a couple of million years, um, this silica will turn into opal. And opal is a very specific material. What it is, basically, is you've got to think of... um, uh, these silica forming little balls. So imagine you get all these little balls, and they're like, in, in a way, like a whole of the tennis balls in a bucket. 
And if you stack them in an ordered way, so not just random, mm. you can get some really interesting optical effects. Now, normal opal, or what we call common opal, which mm. doesn't look pretty at all, it just usually looks white, okay. um, which is there's heaps of, not worth anything, by the way, so mm. don't, don't go getting excited <laughs> if you've got some of that. Um, that has uh, these same little balls, but they're kind of randomly orientated. So they don't um, form what we would call um, sort of semi-crystalline structures. So opal that is precious opal, that's the stuff that has all the shimmering colors. The and black so opal. Yeah, black opal, mm. white opal. Mm. There's all sorts, you know, there's mm. green opal. There's all sorts of opal, mm. depending on location. Mm. Um, you have different um, opals depending on where you find it. These opals have these little spheres um, in an ordered way, so they're stacked beautifully inside. These spheres are only about, you know, 300, 150 to 300 nanometers wide, so bloody small. Um, but they're, they're all stacked in a nice little um, lattice structure. And they're, you know, not huge, but they, they come up to be these little lattices. And then you get what happens is light goes through or white light goes through into the opal. And certain colors only are allowed out. Hmm. And this is um, this is a very interesting optical effect. And you know, if you go, you look at it in one direction, you'll see one color. Yep. You look in another hmm. direction, you'll see another hmm. color. And we see all these shimmering colors, all hmm. different colors, and they're quite quite pretty and they're quite amazing. Um, there's a lot of water and so forth in opals as well, and they're they're a very interesting stone because they're not like the typical gemstones that we get excited about. So diamond, for example, is a crystal. It hmm. every part of a diamond is in this beautiful carbon crystal structure mm, yeah it doesn't have little balls of yeah. you know mm. blobs of carbon it's a beautiful single crystal beautiful piece of um yeah i've never understood the obsession mm. with diamonds over opals to me opals are far more beautiful yeah they're extra- yeah. extraordinary yeah. looking and, and ruby is the same a ruby yeah. is like a, a one single mm-hmm. crystal yeah. one ordered structure whereas an opal is made up of many of these structures and so it's um it's quite quite fascinating because it's something that we can you can actually make quite easily like mm. a lot of people make and you can tell them when they're made because they're often made by people who will take these small spheres and so forth and they'll encase them in like plastics and so forth mm. so they're not not as good as the real yes, stuff yes. and you can tell pretty quickly that they're not real mm. um but they you know they, they they're close to indistinguishable from real so opals are one of those things that um australia of course has a ridiculous uh number of opal and some estimates put us at holding something um in excess of 95 percent of the precious opal in the world wow and don't get excited victorians because 80 percent of that's in south australia so yeah. <laughs> it's not that's not the moment um but we and we have um the largest opal ever found um was found in 1956 um in in south australia and it was checked it out 3.4 kilos Wow. So you think of the little opal you're used to getting on your ring or on yeah, your pendant. Yeah, yeah. This sucker was 3.4 kilos, which is um, about the length of a school ruler, so almost 330 yep. uh, centimetres long, and um, about half that again width and, and yeah. height. So it was a big blob. Where is it uh, now? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. I'm not sure where they keep it, but um, it's, yeah, it's pretty, pretty it's big. Yeah, it's a pretty big thing. And um, I think opals are, are one of those things where I think Ethiopia also has uh, a lot of opals, but there's not many places. And, and you know, historically, opals have had all different bad raps because hmm. um, I, I think in Russia, uh, you know, it's close to like 80 years ago or something, you know, if you, if you saw opal, you didn't buy anything else. Like, oh, sorry, really? Because, you know, it's bad, you know. Really? And, and the way that the way opals historically, because they captured the light and so forth, have been mm. seen as all sorts of weird stuff. And, and mm. they were very rare in Europe. So 
you know, historically, you go back a fair way in Europe, they were, they were very rare, so people had, um, you know, kings and so forth had them, but that was about it, and then they went through a period where they were, they mm. were seen as, you know, potentially problematic, and I think someone, someone died while mobile nearby, and you know, you know, these stories had a, had a end. <laughs> but, um, wow. but they are, and, um, they are very, very, um, highly regarded internationally, especially there's a lot of work on synthetic opal that goes on in Japan. Mm. Um, you know, J- Japanese love, love our opals and, and so forth. So anyway. Opals, mm. um, not that hard to make geologically, actually. They don't require volcanoes or plate tectonics. They just require... How long do they take? Uh, about six million years. So, 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 so get time. Yeah. Kind of an investment <laughs> there. Yeah, yeah, time. So. Although, although from a, uh, I guess from the point of view of uh, geological time scales, it's not too bad. No, it's not. Um, no. You don't need a volcano. You don't need a, you don't need a major <laughs> earthquake. You, you can make them relatively close <laughs> to the surface, and all you needed was an inland ocean for a bucket few of million sand. years. And a bucket of sand. <laughs> and off you go. So uh, <laughs> they're great. Anyway, folks, we're going to have to leave it there. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to my team, Dr. Ewan, Chris KP. Good to have you guys in. Pleasure. Liv's been doing our Twitter feed, and uh, we had some great guests today. It was really interesting, uh, especially the robotic stuff. It's just fascinating. So love that stuff. Uh, We're going to hand over now to the team from Edit. Uh, Thanks so much for listening to Triple R. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.